but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We are three rounds through the French Open. Everybody is at the round of 16, men and women. This is what we get with the Sunday start at the French Open, right? This is Saturday now. Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Toronto, Canada. And I have to say, it's been a mostly displeasing tournament. <laughs> um, Yeah. I don't want to cast a pall on the episode because there's a lot of stuff to talk about, which we will. But I realized that without Rafa here, I don't really like this tournament. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy surgery. Happy birthday. From your SOAS <laughs> surgery bed, Rafa Nadal. This is not the typical Rafa birthday situation. No, but honestly, I just realized this is a a distant fourth favorite Grand Slam. Like, I, I just don't don't really enjoy it that much unless Ruff is winning. I can't say that. Mm. I just don't know how Wimbledon comes out of the number four spot ever. <laughs> really. Well, I mean, well, we're spoiled because of Venus and Serena and their history there. But if not for them, what would our memories be of Wimbledon? Well, yes. I just enjoy watching it a lot more. And that that horn chant thing flourish that pa 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 da da we will never know peace. We will never know <laughs> peace. It haunts me in my dreams. Right. I just think that Wimbledon occupies this space in our mind's eye or collective mind's eye that's not really what it actually is. I feel like we think it's better than it is every year. Okay. And then when we actually live through it, it's miserable. Okay. Well, speak for yourself. I'm distant fourth, Roland Garros. But... What is the but? I realized there, there wasn't a but. <laughs> okay, so this is where you are. This is your truth. You're sitting in it currently. We'll start with the men. And before we get into the upsets and whatnot, I think we may just have to induct Francis Teafo temporarily, at least, into the Body Serve Hall of Shame because <laughs> no. I am disgusted That's that he so was bad. not able to beat that guy today. He had chances. Uh, it. He really could have done it. It's It's depressing. I And now Zverev plays Dimitrov. If he gets through that, he has a really good look at the semis. Uh, I don't want to, I don't even want to think about it. Right, but Francis had an opportunity contingent on what Karen Hachanov did to crack the top 10 for the first time. He is a top 15 player, has been one for a while. This was a match that was right. This is, I mean, I know it's clay and clay is that guy's best surface. But still, like, this was an opportunity. Mm -hmm. The ATP tweeted something after the match with the two embracing, and it was captioned, like, friends first, or some bullshit like that. Just please don't, well, ATP. That, okay, fine, but that's something that Francis himself has played into yeah. repeatedly for a while now. Also another reason really, why really he is he in the Hall of Shame, for now. I, I don't know if I would go that far. He's maybe maybe serving a, a short suspension. 
I don't know that you have power to veto this. <laughs> no, 50, 50, I own 50% of this company. I own 51% <laughs> of this company. Some of the upsets. Now, in the preview episode, I sat here like an idiot, talked about how Daniil Medvedev's result in Rome could be the type of thing that turns this draw on its head. If he could be an actual clay court contender at this tournament, that that throws such a huge wrinkle into how this tournament plays out on the men's side. And look what he went and did in the first round. <laughs> Let's induct him too. No, no. He lost to Thiago Zaibot Vilge, uh, who we'll, we'll get into later because he was a matter of discourse for the entire week. Daniil has played a lot of tennis over the past few months. He almost seemed relieved. He, he didn't seem that heartbroken over being out of the French Open. He's <laughs> now I get a longer break. And you can imagine, like, sometimes if you feel like you're not going to win a tournament, maybe you value the time off as a tennis player. Right. He clearly dislikes Clay still, despite mm-hmm. the good results. And good for him to have the time off. To spend with his newborn, with his wife, whatever. Mm-hmm. But this was not what I needed from this tournament. No, he was complaining. He wasn't the only one uh, complaining about the balls here at Roland Garros. A lot of the players don't like them. It seems to be difficult to generate a lot of pace on these. So he felt he was at a disadvantage because he's not able to hit through these balls. And so many players were complaining that the courts were already slow enough, and then here they come to water the courts. And they're like, what are you doing, guys? Right, so the balls are too heavy, you're watering the courts. Like, again, we ask, why do players seem to not have any input in the equipment and conditions in which they play? Well, this is the thing. Historically, some players appear to have that leverage. The top three, on the men's side, the big three. We've had so many scandals from the fan bases whereby, oh, of course, he get he gets the benefit of whatever he wants to do because he's so-and-so. I Yeah, I just wonder, like, we go through this at nearly every tournament. Why do tournaments have so much power in choosing the balls? If the, the players are the ones who have to play with them, is there any sort of conversation going on between the player councils and the tournament? I imagine it's money involved. Somebody's... Mm-hmm being paid somewhere for these decisions. Right. But this is like another example of tennis looking like a rinky-dink sport. I mean, to us, sure. To the public at large, who don't really pay attention to the minutia of tennis and what happens behind the scenes, I don't think it registers mm. one bit. And I think that's why so many of these things happen over and over and over again. And why, be it the ATP when there's a scandal, be it the ITIA, the... The ITF, the slams, whatever, these things just blow over from day to day for them. Like there's no, I mean, it's just us making a lot of noise. Us <laughs> and y'all on Twitter. Yeah. Nobody yeah. really cares. It's true, sadly. Andre Rublev loses to Lorenzo Sonego from two sets to love for the first time in his career. Sonego has another, uh, possibly has another single coming out this summer. So look out for that. He's still in the tournament. He's in the round of 16. Fabio Fonini beat Felix Auger-Aliassime in straight sets. Mm-hmm. On the face of it, not a surprising result, given that Felix had injury concerns coming in. 
Yeah. I, in my draw, I picked Fabio to win that. It pains me, as you know, but I felt like it was an obvious upset. And then I think the the one that was maybe the biggest opportunity fumbled was Yannick Sinner losing to Daniel Altmaier in round two. Listen, I watched this match and I came away from that match with such a depressed opinion of Yannick Sinner. Mm. Because Oof. what on earth happened in that match granted he had a very unfortunate situation happen whereby on one of his match points Altmaier hit a passing shot where Sinner was at the net and ready and presumably probably 80-90% was gonna put away that volley for the winner in the match and the ball clipped the net and went over his racket Mm. that I believe was in the fourth set this carried on interminably i just want to know how yannick sinner do you play a five and a half hour match in the second round of roland garros and lose to daniel altmaier right i just no matter how well this guy is playing like you should win that you are the young guy who's made the quarters of every single slam you can play on every surface we've been told you have all the the goods the range the shots everything and you now have Darren Cahill in your corner. I just don't understand this result at all. His last four uh, losses in slams have been in five sets. The previous ones were to the eventual winner twice or the runner-up. So that's good. But in this case, I don't think this guy's going to be the winner or the runner-up, considering he lost in the next round. You don't think? It's a matter of fact at this point. <laughs> right. And also, he went on to lose to Grigor Dimitrov in straight sets. Well, I mean, he probably was tired from the previous match. Maybe this means Grigor is ready to take out that guy and we can just mm. stop talking about him. Listen, I hope I put some kind of reverse hex on Grigor. Because on the preview episode, I was very dismissive of his chances. Very. <laughs> yes. And he's come out and won every single match, all three in straight sets. I think it's looking the new, great. It's the Lacoste look. Looking That's... great in Lacoste. You know, he is the grand lad of men's tennis now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just also salty because I picked in my racket bracket on the tennis app for Sinner to make the final. And when I told mm. you I did that, you were like, uh, he's never beaten Medvedev. And I'm like, well, that's a, a, a bridge way off in the future to cross. Right. And, and as it turned out... And Medvedev didn't even win one match, so you were right there. What else happened on the men's side? Tsitsipas is kind of not sailing through, but he's making his way through very quietly. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of noise around him, which is probably good. But he could play Alcaraz in the quarterfinal. Denis Shapovalov seemed to be getting some electricity behind him. And then... Don't weaponize wow. Billy Elliot against me in this <laughs> in this fashion. <laughs> no, but wow. That match against Carlos, it looked like something was happening in the second set. It really felt like, oh, this match could be turning. It was simply a bloodbath. I was almost late for work because I was so invested in seeing just how poor that first set would turn out for him. If that bagel would indeed happen. <laughs> And as it turned out, he won that one game. And then he went up 4-1 in the second set. Only to lose five consecutive games to lose that second set. And that was it. 
That said, that's probably a better result than most people expected for Dennis at this tournament. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do seem to still be on course for a Djokovic Alcaraz semifinal. Of course, anything could happen. Another highlight of that first week was Gael Monfils's first round match. Gael is 37 years old. His wife is doing amazing things <laughs> in the women's draw. Monfils beats Sebastian Baez, who's had a ton of success on clay, in a night session after going down love four in the fifth set. Collapses on court. You have the big French eruption from the crowd. And then withdraws from his second round match. Mm-hmm. This French crowd, every year, it's like, which is which is the worst slam crowd? Yeah. I don't know why we, we pretend. It's always the French. It is. Right, but the other option is, is the, the US. US Open. Right. In my opinion, the US crowd is too disengaged to be the worst crowd. Like, they're loud, they talk a lot, they boo, but they don't boo like... The French will boo you for anything, for no reason. I'm just saying you haven't been to the U.S. Open, so what's, well, that's re- true. what's really your That's true, but here? I know New Yorkers, <laughs> and I get it. I get it. Of which you are one. Every time I tell but somebody not, that I'm you're... I'm not from the city, though. Every time I tell somebody in Toronto that you're from Rochester, New York, they think, oh my God, like, oh, so he must go to the city all the time. No. Like, guys, look, the, uh, map, maps are free now. No, but the majority of Canadians have no idea how close or how far Rochester is from New York City. No, and I mean, why would they? But I was a map nerd you as a child. You just said maps are free. You're right. It's easy to find out. Anyway. But you will you will know this year sure, what the U.S. Sure. crowd is like. I think uh, in tennis circles, a lot of times the Roland Garros crowd gets a pass because they are allegedly more knowledgeable. Like, they're more engaged in the tennis. They know what's going on. Who said that? People say that all the time. It's like, oh, the French, they know their tennis. That doesn't really... Actually, that makes the, the infractions even worse, worse. Because they're booing somebody for uh, taking a medical timeout, uh, questioning a line call. It's like, can everybody shut up so the players can talk to the umpire? Nobody can hear. Djokovic was very pissed yesterday. Did you see him? What 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 else is he pissed about? I mean, <laughs> it's just <sighs> right, but it's just another notch in the you know I've dealt with this all my all my career. I can overcome it. It's like no, this is France. Everybody has dealt with this. I am just having any number of Mariah make it through hardship songs playing in my head. <laughs> I can make it through the rain. I can stand up once again. <laughs> on my own with my metallic button thing on my chest. <laughs> oh my god. Where are we in the draw? What's next? There's 16 men left. And I'll tell you who they are. In the top half, number one Alcaraz against Muzetti. Let me tell you, Muzetti is playing serious ball at this tournament. All right. Winning every match in straight sets. I think that's true. At least. But let me let me check my draw here. This guy Yes. I don't know how much he can prove a threat to Carlos, but he is fresh and playing well right now. You've got Offner against Sitsipas, Djokovic against Varias, and Hachanov against Sonegal. That's the top half. The final eight men in the top half. As you mentioned, this is careening toward a Djokovic Akaras. Semi-final. Mm-hmm. And 
I feel like we're due for it at this point. They've kind of... We, they've played one time. I, I mean, we are due for it. Like, these are the two favorites for the title. And uh, aside from Tsitsipas, of course, which is going to be a huge hurdle, although he doesn't have a good record against Carlos, it is sort of a softish round of 16, in my opinion. The entire draw on both sides is soft. Yeah. The, <laughs> the draws have capitulated on both sides. <laughs> What's on the bottom half of the men's draw? We have Holger Huna versus Serundolo, uh, Nicolas Jari versus Kasper Rude, Dimitra versus Verev, and Echeverry versus Nishioka. I, I've seen people say this is a wide open bottom half. I will remind you that like a lot of these players have been playing extremely well on clay this season. Jari especially, Serundolo, Echeverry has made two finals. Holger Huna is the only player to make two Masters finals on clay, and he won a title in Munich. Yeah, by ranking, it maybe looks like a surprising result, but I think this is actually like a pretty representative bottom half. Right, so you're saying that you may look at the names and think, oh. Or like, oh, this could be anybody. But you have, listen, you have uh, the runner-up from last year. Don't discount him. You have Zverev, who's made the second week consistently here. I hate, and you know, I hate to say this, but he was in the semifinal mm. last year. And Holger Runa, who I picked to reach the final. Oh, you picked, you picked him? I did. Against I, whom? Uh, who did it? Alcaraz. Yeah, that and was... who did you pick to win? I, don't, I honestly don't remember. Okay. Well, of these players, there's 16 left. If I were to pick one to win the whole tournament, it's not going to happen. It would be Grigor. But oh, like who you would like to. I would like sure. to win the tournament. I thought that there's just no way Grigor gets into the second week without playing 72,000 hours on court. But now he's presumably fresh. Yeah. Hasn't lost a set. Who knows what can happen? I mean, we may have to induct him into the Hall of Fame if he wins his next match. Right. No Hall of Shame because I don't think he's expected to win. No. But, but Zverev gives you openings. And these are. This is what Francis wasn't really able to take advantage of. On the women's side, well, well, we came into the tournament with question marks around the health of Iga Swiatek, and my God, there have what? been four bagels. She has... six sets and four bagels. She's lost eight games, and two of those sets were six four. So <laughs> it was six four six love, six four six love, six love six love. You memorized that because it's crazy. Well, now I have to go fact check this. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this. She was asked in press today, a, like a 12-pronged question about the bagel factory. And first of all, she asked the reporter, can you just ask me one question at a time? <laughs> uh, fair. And then she, the reporter was asking like, okay, you know, on, online people love to joke about the bakery, the bagel factory. And the reporter was asking like, who else do you think could join your bagel factory, whatever? Who and, else could she bagel or who or else could bagel? I guess as could, could bagel, yeah. And she said she felt that the question was disrespectful. Oh, and I was like, ooh. <laughs> and essentially... What's the premise like, of the disrespect? Like, I'm just going out there to play. I don't like celebrating kind of... It's She's not trying to humiliate anyone mm. or laugh about beating someone badly, right? Like, everybody's going out there and trying their best. So she felt the premise of the question was like, ick. Mm. Okay. That's a credit to her. Uh, right? Babs Krejcikova. You know I had high hopes. 
Uh, I talked a lot about Krejcikova on our preview episode. You are a Krejcikova <laughs> truther, a stan. You are here for the Barborosans. Yes, but it is the curse of Barbara's confidence. Every time she says, I believe there are way, way more contenders than this supposed big three, I swear she loses. Listen, losing to Serenko in straight sets, what, winning six games in the first round? That is not great. Well, if you saw Serenko today against Bianca, you may change your mind. 6-1, 6-1. I mean, Bianca was not great, but... Still, still. Sure. Babs's clay season has not been amazing prior to RG. The big, the upset of the tournament, literally, was Babs and Katarina in doubles. Apparently, Sinyakova is injured, or has been injured. Okay. They lost to Aikiri and Hozumi in the first round. This is their first loss at a major since the U.S. Open in 2021. They skipped Roland Garros last year. Because Barbara was sick. I mean, this is a colossal upset. Mm-hmm. Other upsets. Andrescu, you mentioned that she lost to Serenko today in the third round. In the first round, she beat Vika Azarenka in three sets. A rousing match that easily, um, some would say, mm, obviously, should have been one of the night matches. We'll get to that. Azarenka was up a set and 3-1. And as she does... Bianca channels something. (laughs) Some inner angst, some inner misery on court to propel her further in that match and to the finish line. Yeah. This is, uh, this may be a surprise to you. It was to me. This is the first time that Bianca has reached a slam third round outside of the United States Open. This was a surprise to me. Yeah. Uh, And in fact, it seems that outside of the U.S. Open, her entire Grand Slam career has been a complete mess. Well, it's she's always coming back from injury. It's been short. It was interrupted by the pandemic. Like that is the the caveat, the context, right? right? right. But still, at this point, she's been around for a while. That this is why the stat is so surprising, especially like given what we we know or what we think we know about her competitiveness. You feel that she can always summon something. Mm -hmm. So I I just assumed that she had a few results here and there. It's giving Belinda Bencic in Grand Slams at this point. No, no, it's actually giving Haddad Maya. Um, Bianca was asked this week if she would consider doing the Breakpoint documentary or if she had ever been approached. The what? The Breakpoint. (laughs) I stumbled through that. The Break Break? (laughs) The Netflix thing. And she said she was asked uh, the first year, and she just wasn't really in a place where she felt she could do it, but that she would love to in the future. And she she feels that her personality would be good for the show. Oh. I think breathe a little life into this thing. She, I think she would be great. They should consult with you. They should. I mean, you because have it's going to be such great opinions. It's going to be burn it this. down and start over. Um, one of the bigger upsets of those first few days was Kudermatova, really. And she's left that section open for Shmidlova to sail through to the round of 16. Well, Shmidlova is the one who did it. So <laughs> yes. sail she should. <laughs> right. Uh, Patrick Vidova, Miami champion. We talked about her in the preview. Remember when I said, why not Petra? <laughs> <laughs> well, Cocharetto said, this is why not. Per no? Carolina Muhova. Beat Maria Sakari, 
we talked about this before the tournament when we're filling out our own brackets. And I had picked Carolina to win that match and you had picked Maria to win that match. And you're like, well, I don't know. Everybody seems to think that Carolina is going to win. And I'm like, you can't go based on what everybody else is yeah, thinking. You were setting me up. <laughs> well, it turns out that way, but the premise of my reasoning was sound. <laughs> right, right. You never know. Like going into a tournament, how many of these uh, probable upsets should you pick? Because they can really destroy your draw if you're wrong. Silly me picked Maria to win that. And I like watched the highlights of Mukova, um in her previous match against Begu, and it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. Like this aggressive play on clay trying to get to the net do you still think she's a boutique tennis player (laughs) i will never not think of that when i I hear her name now i never meant that as an insult i actually meant it as a compliment Mm -hmm. it's like you know uh these when people talk about bands or like restaurants it's like oh not enough people know about this she's she's like a hidden gem but she's becoming more more Mm. well known you're on your way to redeeming yourself (laughs) Now, I picked Carolina to win that match. And then as I made my way through the draw, it's like, well, do I pick her to make the final or do I go and do something crazy? And you know what I did? I did something crazy. And my finalist lost in the second round. Your your finalist? Yeah. No. Junction Chin Oh, okay. Well, who did you think you I missed? her to... Oh, I, I chose thought maybe her. like Carolyn Garcia or something. <laughs> that was another option, but I was like, well, you know, if history tells us anything. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, but I... Jung was risky. She was, but she'd had not stellar results, but solid enough results. And if you believe in her talent, you believe in her talent. Mm-hmm. Period. Okay. And I felt that at some point she has to bust out. And why not it be me to look super smart? <laughs> I respect it. There have been so many of those moments over the past few years. Anna Blinkova beat Garcia in the second round and then matched up against Svitolina, who she lost to in the Strasbourg final. Mm -hmm. And here we are. Alina Svitolina, just coming back from having the baby. Seven months from giving birth. Like Like, looking her first match in Charleston was like, Oh, this is cute. Like you can (laughs) see glimpses. How did we get here so quickly? I mean, back this is when, this is crazy to me. Back when Svitolina was winning 1,000 level events like at will, she was having trouble reaching the stage in majors. Mm-hmm. Like back when she was that good, right? But even before the war broke out, even before the pandemic, Svitolina was on a bit of a downturn. She was. She was. Yes, which is why this surprises me. Yeah, Peyton Stearns beat Yelena Ostapenko. No. And this was the this was the section, right, that we told you to watch. Kazakina, Ostapenko, Vondrosova, Stearns. And Ostapenko, despite her aptitude on clay, is somebody who's who has these early round losses at the French. Like she a lot has of them. Every single time, except for the time she won the tournament. Right. If history tells us anything, <laughs> it's that this was to be expected. And based on what's happened at this tournament, the people who have been playing well are playing well. Peyton Stearns has been playing well. But Kazakina looks good. Looks really good. Like had no problem with Stearns. Sloane Stevens 
paging Sloane Stevens fans. <laughs> the Sloan Hive. What are they called? The Sloan Rangers. The Sloan Rangers. This is good. This is this is a delicious turn at this, this tournament. This is so good. The this past, is the past few years. Sloan uh, in twenty one had some big wins, and then last year reached the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. Like this is what she does. Right. This is this is her best tournament consistently. Mm. This is the ninth time she's made the fourth round at the French Open. She's a finalist before, quarterfinalist last year. Her game makes sense for the surface. Yep. Her best results have come on hard courts, but Sloane Stevens seems tailor-made for this tournament, mm-hmm. and she loves it. And she can be in the wilderness and still come into Roland Garros and play extremely well. She had a good result the week before the French Open. She won that Challenger and Saint-Malo. She is building as much as historically Sloane Stevens can build from week to week. You know, it's often very piecemeal. Sure. But and, and she will have to play Sabalenka in the night match on Sunday. The very first women's night match. <laughs> the second ever women's night wow. match at the French Open. But she's giving everything at this tournament. She's giving you the looks on court. Seemingly a different color dress for every round that she plays. I'd like to see all seven. I know you tweeted Period. that. Yes. She's giving impress. And she's giving in her game. And she's giving in beating Yulia Putintseva again. <laughs> I think now they finally have an even record. Right. She's prepared for the scammery, the wiggery, the giggery, the tomfoolery. We have done many things on this podcast. It's been nine years. I should hope we have. <laughs> and there are things that we're proud of. Things that I think when, <laughs> when in 40 years... People are looking back to do some kind of research as we've done in the last few years. They may reference us and stuff that we've done. Oh, right. Oh, I maybe hope so. Maybe, but... but I think one of our lasting contributions to the sport of tennis will be asking Sloane Stevens about what it was like to play Putintseva in Cincinnati a few years ago, and her saying late at night after surviving that wiggery and giggery that if it's not one scam. It's another. I've seen that reference so many times in the last few days. It's so good. And then this week, Tamini Carriol brought it up to Sloan and Press. And he said, someone once said that playing against Putin Seba, if it's not one scam, then it's another. Someone. (laughs) (laughs) You, Sloan. (laughs) And she said, and you saw it today, didn't you? Just like that. Wow. Didn't skip a beat. Didn't work too well. Did it. Because (laughs) Sloan won that first set pretty easily. Putintseva was up 5-love in that second set, eventually winning it 6-3. Sloan was very close to coming all the way back in that second set. And then when Sloan seemed to have a little bit of momentum at the start of that third set, here we go. Mm -hmm. Here we go with the medical timeout. And Sloan is there trying to keep warm, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Putintseva is on you know, the mat, getting treatment, and then she gets wrapped. The thigh gets wrapped for the gods. Mm -hmm. And then she starts playing, and oh no, points are being lost. And then the thigh (laughs) immediately gets unwrapped because it's too tight. (laughs) Like, listen, the scam didn't work. 
-hmm. you needed to break her allegedly break her momentum and so you got this timeout which you've done in numerous times in your career and then when someone is still winning points you realize that well this actually may be prohibiting my play <laughs> this might be <laughs> restrictive oh, this game didn't work and normally we would give the benefit of the doubt to any player who takes a medical timeout but this is the girl who cried wolf this is the scammer in chief <laughs> A few other results I wanted to mention. Uh, Kayla Day has had a great tournament. She beat Keys early on. And you may remember the name. Like, I knew the name. I knew she was American. Does she play right or left-handed? I have no idea. And didn't remember <laughs> where she went. She had a breakout in 2017, right after the Australian Open uh, in Indian Wells. She beat Mirjana Lucic-Baroni, who was the runner-up at that Australian Open. And she was also the winner of the Junior U.S. Open in 2016. So she was building this really promising career, but she had a ton of different injuries. She had mono, uh, but now she's working with Pat Cash, and things seem to be looking up. No, not another one with I know, Pat Cash. I know. <laughs> before it was Wang Chung, remember? It was, and before that, of course, it was Coco Vandeweghe. Oh, my Lord. 16-year-old Mira Andreva. Who, shout out to her. And shout out to you for mentioning her in our preview. I mean, I wasn't the only one. I okay. Don't, I don't need to take credit for that. Like, if you're following tennis on a like granular a, level, yeah. you know that this, this young woman is about to hatch and snatch. <laughs> she sailed past Alison Risk Armitrage and Perry and then gave Coco a real scare. In that first set. But Coco mm -hmm. got through the rest pretty easily. And there is this video that's been going around where Mira was interviewed after her first round win against Alison Risk. And there is... It's great. Uh, 16 years old, having seemingly a Hingis-esque understanding of the <laughs> was... ins and outs of how to strategize on a tennis court mm. and to execute... And then also a bit of nastiness and shade, but delivered with sweetness, which is something that Martina struggled with. Let's <laughs> yeah, be honest. It was the sweetness that was absent. <laughs> so there's a lot to look forward to potentially from Mira Andreeva. Mm. The round of 16 draws on the woman's side. Iga Sviantek, she's still there. She plays her fourth round match against Lesia Sorenko. Shmidlova against Coco Goff. Sara Soribes Tormo against Haddad Maya. Uh, this is the battle of the three named ladies. Yes, and this is Bia's uh, first appearance in a slam third round. That's hard to believe, right? Well, I mean, she had that stretch. Where was it? Heading into Wimbledon last year or the year before where she won two mm. warm-up tournaments and then lost in the first yeah. round. And then she had that stretch where she served a doping suspension. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's not that surprising. Bernarda Pera... From the United yes, States. You mentioned her in the preview. I think you're the only person who mentioned Pera. Uh, but here she is in the fourth round. What did I say about her? I don't know. You just called out, oh, there, you know, there's somebody who could potentially win did a few I, rounds. I feel like I may have been dismissive. Oh. I don't know under, under what context I, I would know. have Maybe you're just her to do anything. reading her name off the draw. And uh, here is Ons Jabour. Jabour had a little bit of trouble with, um, what's her name? Olga Danilovich. 
today. That was what that was tricky, and we were in pretty rough waters in the second set there. But she turned it around. On the bottom half, we have Mukhova versus Avanisyan, uh, runner-up from 2021. Pavlyuchenkova versus Eliza Matins, third-round queen, making the fourth round. But also Pavs. Pav. Pavs is back. Uh, Martins beat the, what, number three, Jesse Pagula. Pagula said that she had food poisoning. Ooh, there's, something, had, there's something going around. That she, no, but she went out to a restaurant and had, like, bad... If you say sushi, I'm going to be upset. No, okay. she had something your mother really loves. Escargot? Yes. No. Yes. Oh, I don't know if I would eat that during a tournament escargot and something else she said she had Mm. i mean i didn't do full research on this it just came up on my feet (laughs) but allegedly and it would fit in with the scoreline honestly and elena rybakina pulled out of her match today one of you know really one of the favorites Mm -hmm. and she was ill she said with a fever Uh, but moving on we have svitolina versus kazatkina and then sloan versus sabalenka one really exciting bottom half for me also a throwback bottom half. Yes. You've got Pavlyuchenkova, Mertens, Svitolina, Kasatkina, Stevens. Uh, and I feel like it's, give, like the men's bottom half, it's giving you dirtballer. Like it's giving you clay sensations. Clay sensations? <laughs> is it nourishing your sensations? Oh, remember that? Yeah. I think you still have to go with Shriantek as the favorite at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by, by quite a margin. In my opinion. Really? Yeah. I don't think it's close. Well, we shall see. This <laughs> tournament has taught us to expect the unexpected. We have a few etceteras from the first, not even the first week, and we'll get right into it. Throughout this first week, there's been such a huge amount of talk, a lot of discourse around this night session that features one match. A cash grab. <laughs> Yeah. By the French Federation. Up up to Saturday, there have been no women's matches featured in the night session. This was a, a matter of a lot of discussion. There will be one on Sunday. Sabalenka-Stevens. I mean, we got Zverev Malkin. Right. Happy for but, those folks who paid for those tickets, honestly. I think my position on this is I just, I reject the premise. I don't even want to get into the discussion about equality versus women and when men's matches when this session is so flawed and so clearly created out of greed it should not exist like it's a bad value for your money don't go don't spend your money on one match because it can be a walkover it can be a total flop at Roland Girls, I don't think that the night session should exist at all right but I think it's such a clear indication of how they value women's tennis that yeah period, a flop men's match is greater value than a flop women's match. That's what they think. Because it's like three shitty sets versus two shitty sets. That's what you're paying for. It's all about length. At the very minimum, you'll get three sets. That's all it is. And you will like it. And if you don't, Mm. we don't care. To me, it's, it's like this spreading of the calendar or the schedule, just like we saw in Rome and Madrid. Your fans are getting a lower value for their dollar. But you're just taking advantage of, well, we can sell more tickets, so we're going to have this session. We're not going to put any women on it, because we don't think anybody will watch it. Hmm. Emily Moresmo took a lot of shit for this last year. And, you know, was like, oh, we'll, 
we're going to review it next year and da 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 da. I understand, and I think we understand that tournament directors, especially at the slam level, don't really have a lot of power. The federations are, are doing the work. The French Federation, they're deciding who's going on. Emily Moresmo is not sitting down at the calendar and, and writing up the schedule herself, right? But I think she's done her reputation a lot of damage by being the tournament director and overseeing this. Because she's the one who has to go out and defend it. And it's indefensible. <laughs> right. <laughs> For any what, number like, of reasons. She's choosing to put herself in this position where she's defending something that isn't right. I don't know. It's a weird decision to me. So yeah, we'll see how that woman's match plays out. Sabalenka Stevens. It's a no-win situation, right? Because if that's a flop match, then it's like, well, well. We tried it once, and this is what happens, right? It's always like, we tried it that one time, and it didn't work. So, never again. Arena Sabalenka has gotten a lot of negative press these past few days. Yes. Why? Well, she opened against Marta Kostyuk, a Ukrainian player. Marta and the Ukrainians do not shake the hands of Russians and Belarusians. We know this. This has been going on for months. The crowd started booing at the end of the match. Arena thought it was for her Mm -hmm. and did this sort of theatrical bow thing. But Arena has, uh, she's been hounded by this one (laughs) journalist in press. Uh, In her first match, this journalist, I counted, spoke for 70 seconds, accusing Sabalenka of a few things, of kind of cozying up to the dictator of her country, Lukashenko, uh, she was probing the answers she's given about whether she is for or against the war, because Arena has said that no athlete is pro-war. She didn't say that I am against the war. Like, she didn't say it that directly, right? She's also said dismissively that sports shouldn't be in politics, which, if you listen to this podcast, you know how much that grinds my gears well, well, they are. And on the same day, Djokovic injected politics pretty heavily into tennis. And then, of course, denied that that mm. was political. So there's two things at play here. There is this idea that what can Sabalenka really say? How far can she go to speak out against Lukashenko and Belarus, her home country, and its involvement in the invasion of Ukraine without endangering her family? There's that idea. There's a, there are folks who give her that grace. And then there are folks who say, well, your actions don't allow me to grant you that grace. Because you've sat down with him. You've hugged him. You've said things in support of him before. So what is it? Right. But where I stand is, and I don't know how much of a firm stand it is, but what kind of irritates me is that There's an inability of Arena to communicate with a deft touch on this issue. I think there is a needle to thread. There's a way to go about it where you acknowledge that there are your peers who are seriously struggling. And that supersedes whatever inconvenience you may experience by having to answer these questions over and over and over again. And when you go and win your match... And then you're interviewed by John Wortham on court afterward. And then you kind of do a kiss-off glib. Well, they're going to they're gonna do and think what they want anyway, so whatever. Which is tantamount to what she said. Right. And May have been verbatim. In press 
to that one journalist, she said, basically, you're going to write what you're going to write. So I've answered this question a lot of times. I don't know if it's a language thing, but it comes, a few of her quotes recently have come off as a little bit dismissive. I'm not going to sit here and condemn her because I, I really have no idea what it's like to live under an authoritarian regime. I really don't. But the things that people are upset about is like many, many photographs of her with Lukashenko that have gone viral since this happened. A recent open letter. They may that have gone she viral, said, but they've existed for a while. Yeah, yeah. This is not new stuff. Right. Uh, so it's not like these questions are asked without premise. No, it's not like, oh, you happen to be from Belarus. What do you think? It's also you are from Belarus and you have been seen, at least superficially, kind of buddying up with Lukashenko. You signed an open letter in support of him recently. Uh, These are reasonable questions, in my opinion. Like, this is what a journalist is supposed to do. If you don't want journalists at slams, then fine. Like, it'll all be PR from now on. You just want canned responses, great. But this is what journalists are trained to do. You are not a serious person if your immediate response is, oh, well, that's just a gotcha question. Like, or are you Sarah Palin? I, I, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> and again, like, this is complex. This is not saying that Arena Savalenka is responsible for the actions of her country. But these are legitimate questions. Uh, I think that any player from any country who's showing aggression and invading, uh, Americans should be asked these same questions. They're not, and they won't be, and that's unfair. Right, but the, the, the whataboutism, like, well, you can't ask about this because that wasn't asked about then. Mm-hmm. That, too, is a non-starter for me. Yeah. Let's yeah. acknowledge it all. Let's acknowledge <laughs> the shortcomings, the failures in the past. Right. Let's acknowledge the double standards. To blanketly state that, well, this is journalism gone wrong, this is, this is gotcha stuff, we should just be playing tennis. People, we are in 2023. There are many other things for you to enjoy in life that is just for you without it being sullied by the stain of politics. By the woke mob. And sport is not it. We've seen it time and time and time again. Just enjoy what you enjoy. Like, I, I, can't, I can't. And Arena, in my opinion, needs to do better. She can do better. This has been going on for a while now. Like, you are, you've been in the public eye for a long time. You are one of the very top women's tennis players. One of the top tennis players on the planet, period. You are in your glow-up era, currently. Mm. This is part of your job, to deal with these questions. And if you, if you don't want it to go sideways in a way that's detrimental to you, you have some control over that. And at a certain point... Your failure to do so speaks volumes about what you think about the situation. I'm not making that leap Mm. here, but like we're getting into that territory whereby your repeated glibness makes me think, well, what really is happening here? I'm I'm losing my bandwidth Mm. to grant her grace in the situation. I absolutely, and I have subscribed on this podcast many times, and I've said it many times, that... She is in a difficult spot. Yes. And we don't know what those ramifications are for her. But as I said, there is a needle to thread. I I think it boils down to she's getting bad advice. I don't think her team is doing her any favors here. 
there has to be a PR company out there who can help her navigate this. Because it, it is not easy. And like, I have sympathy for her, right? She gets these questions at every tournament. But yeah, the answer that like no athlete is pro-war is disingenuous because it's not true. Let us segue then to Novak Djokovic. <laughs> so Novak, after his first round match, wrote on the camera, Kosovo is the heart of Serbia. Stop the violence. So some context here. There has been an increase in tension and clashes in northern Kosovo recently between uh, NATO forces and Serbian protesters. Some feel that the Serbian protesters are actually militants who are associated with the Serbian regime. I, I can't confirm this one way or another, but tensions have been pretty high in Kosovo recently. I want to start by saying we have really shied away from talking about Novak's politics on this podcast, uh, aside from the vaccine stuff. Mm-hmm. But there have been things out there that we've known for many years. Or have been made aware of. Yeah, about Novak's politics with regard to Serbian nationalism that we have not talked about because if you probably noticed that any discussions about the Balkans online typically don't end well. Uh, it's it's a really difficult and complex situation that we're not experts in, so we've shied away from it. But I think, and that probably is a failure in our part, probably because we could have educated ourselves. Uh, but I think at this point, it is important to talk about it. He forced our hand. Yeah, yeah. And you win your first round <laughs> match, and you do that. Like, come on! In the middle of a very tense situation in Kosovo. So, just for some background here, Kosovo in 2008, made a unilateral declaration of independence from Serbia. Serbia rejected it and has not recognized Kosovo's sovereignty. The country is recognized by the G7 and 101 countries in the UN. So not everybody, but countries with their own border disputes tend to not recognize Kosovo. So those are countries like Spain, that has Catalonia and the Basque Country, Russia, China, Greece. Countries that have issues in their own backyard well right because if they recognize a unilateral declaration of independence they could be setting a precedent in international law kosovo is 90 percent albanian and 95 percent muslim and less than 10 percent serbian some serbians feel that kosovo is the essentially the heartland of old serbia there's a lot of monasteries important churches it was part of Serbia's medieval kingdom. They feel very connected to it. Djokovic himself, his dad, is from Kosovo. So in 2013, they signed the Brussels Agreement, which was meant to normalize relations between Kosovo and Serbia. Uh, It was negotiated by the EU. Serbia wouldn't recognize Kosovo's sovereignty, but they agreed on this Brussels Agreement that would integrate the Serb-majority areas in northern Kosovo into the larger Kosovar legal system. So it was basically a way to concede, okay, this part of Kosovo that's being uh, disputed, that's majority Serbian, we'll we'll let that be part of the Kosovar legal system. Uh, Unfortunately, Serbia never ratified this agreement. So here we are. Ten years later, the Serbian prime minister Vukic says that the agreement no longer even exists. And the, the present tensions are because Uh, There were elections for local councils, Serbian Kosovars boycott elections, therefore ethnic Albanians won 
And now they're protesting uh, basically the election of uh, ethnic Albanian mayors in areas of the country that are majority ethnic Serbian. That makes sense? Yes. So there's religious and ethnic tensions here. And this, of course, is like under the the shadow of a horrible war in the late 90s when Yugoslavia was breaking up, Kosovo was trying to assert independence. There was a war between Serbia, Serbia and Kosovo, a war between Serbia and Bosnia, of course. Uh, these tensions had never really been um, resolved. So here we are. Djokovic writes, Kosovo is the heart of Serbia on the camera. And as usual, which is his usual response to these things, it's incredulity that anybody could think he had a bad intention. It's like, what? I just meant I don't I don't believe in war. I want to stop the violence. And at this point, like... But what does Kosovo is the heart of Serbia mean? <laughs> right. It Kosovo, doesn't exist in a vacuum. Kosovo is an, an entity that declared independence from Serbia. Over 100 countries around the world recognize it as an independent country. So Djokovic saying that Kosovo is Serbia is inflammatory. He said it back in, I think, 2008 when he was young, and he's been fairly quiet about it since. I think what bugs me and what bugs me about Djokovic is like the, it's always the shock, the shock that his actions could be taken in a negative way. When he's an adult, he should know what that means. In the past, Novak has been seen hanging out with people who committed alleged war crimes uh, during the wars in the late 90s, hanging out with genocide deniers, uh, including people who participated in the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia, which killed 8,000 men and boys. Uh, I mean, just hanging out with these folks at weddings and stuff. This happened during the pandemic, and we chose not to mention it again because we felt we didn't understand enough, but... It it bears mentioning. So where do you land on this issue? I don't want to be like a pardon the interruption, Stephen A. Smith kind of thing here. <laughs> yeah. But you've laid out a lot of mostly facts here. Where I land is that how can you possibly say something like that, Kosovo is Serbia, and then be surprised that people think you're being inflammatory, that you're stoking tensions, like a dangerous situation already? How can you be surprised? And uh, how have you escaped criticism for hanging out with people who've perpetrated atrocities during the Bosnian War, during the Kosovar War? It's, uh, yeah, it's depressing, guys. Like, it's not great. This is his first match in his attempt to become the all-time great by, by number, by sheer volume of slam wins at this French Open. And that's what he does in his first match. Yeah. And what really bugs me is that he says quote a drama free grand slam i don't think it'll happen for me but he's saying it in a glib right ha 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 kind of way you know you are the drama at every turn it's not like it's not not people victimizing you you literally brought this on yourself you don't get to insert the politics and then pretend like politics don't exist. And then say, oh, I, I wish I could have had a drama-free tournament. But, you know, it just, it just always happens. You did it. At every turn. Right. He's done it. So this part is a bit more lighthearted. Uh, folks spotted a, a device on Djokovic's chest. I have seen his chest more than I ever thought I needed to over the past few days. Don't body shame, James. I'm, it's not a body shame. I just did not ask. Uh, so Djokovic has been wearing 
a nanotechnology device called the Tao Patch, or maybe the Dao Patch. I, you know how like Taoism is spelled with a T. Hmm. So I don't I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, made by an Italian company, which quote nourishes the body with wavelengths of therapeutic light. Now, when I saw this, I didn't need to know the context. I didn't to know what it was. I just saw the image and I was like, what in the fresh hell is this shit now? But of course, it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) Absolute perfect sense. When you can will the water to change through positive vibes, you can have the nano microbe magnetic field battery change your body composition and balance to then make you a super force on tennis mm-hmm. on the tennis court. It's, when five G technology can cause viral illnesses or whatever. The when hell vaccines was. are murdering people, I can't even say it's it's not to be believed because it is one hundred percent to be believed. It's just such an upside down place to be in. It's I mean it's like a clown car of pseudoscience here. I mean, this is not a it's big giving deal me, for me. This it's is... giving me, you know, you watch all these period shows and there's this man who shows up on a wagon, you know, unexpectedly. And he's got all these trinkets and devices <laughs> in the back of the wagon. And he's <laughs> like, this, this potion will do this and this thing will do that and blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the episode, he's run out of town by mm. all these people who have been hoodwinked, lost all their money and some have died. <laughs> That's that's it's, what it's that's what it's giving to it's me. It's the music man. Uh, anyway, the Tao Patch or Dao Patch claims that it improves posture, muscle activation, and balance. So who knows? It may be working. We're not scientists. It isn't banned. In my opinion, it's not banned because it's not actually doing anything. Um, <laughs> but if I'm, I'm giving if, you, you had a a coinage. Yeah. If Placebovich feels like it's working. <laughs> Then it's working. <laughs> no, but in reality, the placebo effect is so powerful. It is. It it no. No, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely is. It is so powerful that even if you know something is a placebo, it can still have a positive effect medically. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Crazy. Mm-hmm. This shit is just. Anyway, so Mr. Tiago. Right, uh, Tiago. We mentioned in our preview had been accused of domestic violence and his ex-girlfriend had actually filed charges. And I remember saying, I don't know what's happened with this case. Like I can't find anything. No, we couldn't find any updates for a while. And here he goes beating the number two seed at the French Open. And And he thinks he's having his one moment in time racing with destiny. Well, sir, your destiny is a segment on the Body Surf podcast (laughs) right now. We got We got updates. His ex-girlfriend accused him of emotional, financial, and physical abuse and press charges. We already know that he's a far-right Bolsonaro supporter, but his ex also accuses him and his family of being racist. He says his mom's side are actual Nazis and his great-grandpa was like Hitler's bestie. Now, you took the lead with this part of the agenda, and when I read that, I... I was not exaggerating. There's so much on this agenda that I question my reality. (laughs) And this was one of them. And when you explained it to me, I was like, you know what? Take it away, because Mm -hmm. I am bereft. All right. 
So this actually, this kind of went semi-viral on Tennis Twitter today, but this is not new information. His ex-girlfriend talked about this in 2021. It was published in Brazilian media. I was reading it translated earlier in the week, and I was trying to wrap my head around it because there were a lot of screenshots of texts in Portuguese that went untranslated. So I'm like, what are they talking about? We, we already knew that Vilge was a Bolsonaro supporter. In the text messages, he talked, he criticized his girlfriend for having black friends, mm-hmm. called her low class. Yeah. Uh, so we already know he's racist. But he expanded on that and said, actually, my mom's side of the family are literal Nazis. You know, a lot of Nazis fled to South America, to Brazil and Argentina after the war. We know this. Apparently, the Zaibosch Vilches were uh, were one of those families. He claims that his great-grandfather was, um, like, essentially Hitler's mentor. Mm. A weird shit. A really just uncharted territory for tennis. And so he's asked about this domestic violence case in his press conference. Big surprise. Here come the evil tennis journalists mm-hmm. doing the disgusting, off-color, just demonic work. Right, of just ruining this great day in his this life. This great story. Because if if we can't have Frank DeFord or Mitch Album write some flowery prose, then what are we going to do? <laughs> uh, German reporter Yannick Schneider asked, uh, and Vilge responded, I don't think it's a subject we should be asking about here. I think it's a question you shouldn't ask anyone. I don't think it's up to you to decide if this is the place to talk about it or not. He was really aggressive in his response. It was an important question to ask. It's not an easy question. Because let's be real, he's not ranked high enough to be asked about it very often. And that's why we don't know anything. Exactly. We saw this story reported multiple times. John Wertheim confirmed it. Schneider, the journalist, was accosted by a member of Vilge's team. Uh, Wertheim said it was his agent. And this person attempted to photograph Yannick's credential. Uh, apparently, the, the situation was defused, but that person, that agent, should have his credential removed immediately. That is outrageous. Post haste. Trying to intimidate a journalist behind the scenes? No. The reason we didn't know anything more about uh, Tiago's case was that Brazilian authorities had attempted to deliver a subpoena at his reported address three times, and he wasn't there. I now have information. That will, lead, that will lead to the arrest of Tiago Zaibot-Vilch. He's in Paris. <laughs> Go get him. It is just one almighty mess after another. It's important to know that the overall tone, if that wasn't conveyed in your description of the press conference, was incredibly dismissive. Yeah. And nothing about that response gave me any assurance that this was an innocent person i get i mean i'm not saying he's guilty but may not be guilty of this but he is racist that hitler story is just no to be clear i I don't think he was saying he wasn't saying like oh i'm a nazi he was trying to explain because his girlfriend was saying what exactly was he trying to explain i don't know i don't have any nazi relatives so i can't really put myself in his place that you know of um I think we can be fairly certain. <laughs> we, we, were, we were on the wrong side. Um, 
Do you have any Missolini <laughs> relatives? I think they were mostly peasants. Like, I think we're fine. Um, <laughs> I think he was saying, his girlfriend was saying, your mom hates black people, hates gays, Jews, everybody. And he was trying to explain why she was so racist. These 80 years later. Right. Yeah. Anyway, um, that that's the bad stuff. A bit of a circle back here. Do you want to say anything about Arena changing the dynamics of the press situation? I think it was masterful. She decided not to have a press conference. A traditional press for conference. For mental health reasons. Two and years after Naomi Osaka went through all that at the French Open. And of okay. course, that's the obvious comparison that people want to make. Instead, she did have a smaller... I don't know what you would call it, a press engagement with reporters that were handpicked by the tournament organizers. Mm -hmm. A few things here. I think it's a good thing that the tournament is responsive in light of what happened to Naomi. Let's, Let's proceed with the assumption that they have learned something from that situation. As tennis changed because of things that Serena and Venus did, right? Naomi did something that was nearly unprecedented. Maybe tennis has changed ever so slightly because of that. That a lot of people mocked her for as well. Yep, of course. Uh, but the situation is quite different. I I don't think that a player should have to sit through that shit if they don't want to. They they can pay the fine and they can not have a press conference. I mean, that's always the rub, right? It's like, <laughs> right. well, how dare you put them through that? But they do have some choice. And yes. especially a top player. Let's be real. It's only the top players Unless you're Tiago, who has like a case in Brazil and you're ranked 100 and something. Well, and Tiago, for his second uh, round match, he lucked out because nobody actually requested him. So it's it's being reported that he skipped press in the second round, but apparently nobody actually requested him. So there was no press conference. Right. Um, with Arena, like, I believe that it's a mental health issue. Like, this is extreme stress, but it's a really different situation from what happened with Naomi like this this is questions about your alleged um <laughs> I guess closeness to or allegiances to a dictator um it's really different and again like I'm not saying that Arena is guilty of anything it's just not it's not the same it's not the same did you see what Taylor Fritz did yeah he like shushing the crowd he went off he did a Tomas Berdich he did a Tom he did a Berdich Cubed. Times Shapovalov plus Kyrgios equals... <laughs> Minus Alcaraz. <laughs> Let me hear the noise. <laughs> it was... I was impressed by his commitment to it. Because and I would think that you would be equally or doubly impressed. Because you hate this crowd. You've always said your entire life that I've known you that the French open crowd is trash. They are absolutely obnoxious obnoxious and i don't blame him for doing that was it the strategically the best thing to do maybe not because you've made some enemies but good for him he went out in the next round but he he just put his finger to his mouth and told him all to shut the fuck up (laughs) and he did not stop he kept doing it over and over and over again and when on court afterward Marianne Bartoli was trying to interview him. It was a good minute and a half. That video was like two minutes. A minute and a half of it was her trying to start an interview. (laughs) And it could not happen because 
the, he just stood there. They both stood there dripping in the booze. <laughs> B-O-O-S. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. You know, you make your bed, you're laying it. And he did. He he felt something needed to be said and he did it. I mean, he spoke for a lot of people that night, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what we've been saying, like, come on, give us something. And he did. He gave us something. Right, but this speaks to a very specific issue with this crowd about how they react specifically when French players are playing. We see a similar dynamic in Australia when world number 226 has the time of his life winning a set and a half in the first round and the crowd goes absolutely bonkers and it's... Mm. A hooliganistic environment. <laughs> but in uh, in Paris, like, do we have to sing La Marseillaise uh, when French players are winning? Like When Luca Puy wins his match I and think, then he stands up and starts singing along with the crowd? Like, that is... Uh, I know a lot of people in tennis found that to be like a heroic moment. I don't... French nationalism gets a pass for some reason. Like... American crowds, if they started singing the Star Spangled Banner, it would not be received well internationally. Well, Americans are by and large racist. So when Serena <laughs> oh, and Venus really? were winning um, at the US Open, they would not be is, singing, Oh, say, can you see? Is that a problem that impacts other former imperial nations like the UK and France? They don't have racism? They do. Oh, okay. I'm just <laughs> saying, in recent history with the US... How many stars have you had? That were white. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. But the U.S. has this enmeshing of sport and politics and the military-industrial complex. Yes. At all levels of sport, from youth sport to college sport to professional sport. You even said to me, like, well, let's buy a night session for the first day of the U.S. Open because I want to see no, what I that shit's see, about. No, I want to see that spectacle. I really do. The unfolding of the flag, the yeah. this, the that, the blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, sure, go for it. <laughs> but I'm just saying, to your point, yes, the French, you know, show of nationalism is seen as less threatening almost mm-hmm. than the U.S. But to me... Also cringe. They're both barfworthy <laughs> for me. Right. I did not find anything about that appealing or inspiring. It was entirely cringe. Okay. Uh, a few more things quickly. Richard Gasquet, uh, did he retire? He it, tweeted something the other day. The tweet is still up that led people to think he had been hacked because it said, I've retired from tennis and... I'm launching this partnership with some cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And I would like you to support this crypto the same way you've supported me throughout my career. (laughs) So I don't know if his account has been compromised or if that's really him. I I guess we'll find out. Let's talk about the looks. Uh, We mentioned Dimitrov is now with Lacoste and is just killing it. Uh, It looks great. I mean, he is, he's basically the person who Lacoste was designed for. Not that other one. Well, I mean, Grigor is just m- more willing to wear the more out there designs. You know, I'm just thankful that we have some kind of positive association with the crocodile now. <laughs> <laughs> the Bidu Badu pastel tone color blocking, like I'm, I'm into it. 
that is really cool. The men's look has that uh, kind of onesie illusion. It's not really a onesie. It's a two-zie. <laughs> it's no, a shirt and shorts, no. but don't do uh, that. But it evokes Francis Tiafo's Australian Open kit that looked like a, a jumper. Liam Brody. We talked about this in the last episode. Liam Brody wars in qualifying, lost, and Andy Murray was roasting him. Andy Murray was wrong, clearly wrong. <laughs> not for the first time that yeah, episode. Yeah. It's been worn by Matt Ebden, Wesley Kulov, Nuria Parisas. Uh, so it's still got a hipster vibe to it. Does Matt Ebden know that those colors could be homosexual? And that this is June and this is gay month? Uh, I this don't is know. queer month? I don't know. This has all the letters going up in unison this for, month. For context, you're saying that because he's part of Margaret Court's church. Has been. Right. Maybe he's I don't know seen he the light. I don't know. We talked about Sloan's many colors. Uh, the Nike white and green striped dress, you hear say it's okay. Nothing groundbreaking but a clean look. Yeah, Bianca was wearing this. Uh, I think, uh, I want to say Danilovich was wearing it too. It, like, it's a great fit. It it looks classic, clean. It's nothing too exciting, but it looked good. If you follow this show for a while now, you know that I'm partial to anything black and white. I was very into the on- Ben Shelton, Iga Sviantek look. Oh, I was not. That had the, the black vertical stripe over one shoulder. You were very it's, unimpressed uh, by it. It's very basic to me. <laughs> I liked it. What can I say? That's fine. We talked about Rafa. Uh, it's his birthday. He also had a surgery on his birthday. It was an arthroscopic, uh, you know. They were going in there to see what was going on. Was it his actual birthday or was it June 2nd? I don't, I don't know. It was close enough. Mm-hmm. While they were in there, they found an older injury to the labrum, which is uh, like a cartilage. Fixed it. Rafa's socials are badly curated. So this was released in Spanish. So uh, I had to translate it. I don't know what they did to the labrum or the psoas, but it's going to be a five-month recovery. And it so happened that Two days ago, you couldn't translate anything on Twitter because that was down. <laughs> right. An update on Mikhail Emer uh, about the lumberjacking, the umpire's chair. He was fined about 40,000 USD for the incident, and it was similar to uh, Zara's fine. That's it? That's it, yeah. And that's the final That's the final utterance <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> this is episode 304 of The Body Serve. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at, at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Who knows what week two of the French Open will bring, what it will rot, what it will ring? You know, I don't know. <laughs> you, I don't know the conjugations of... You are the English <laughs> <laughs> major. What will happen? Yeah. Uh, but we will be back. And till then. Thank you. Thank you very much.